0: You know, it's really satisfying as a preacher to see sometimes that people are not only listening to what you have to say, but that they make an effort to go ahead and and try to implement that in their lives. so for Shannon to have the humility to admit that he was having a senior moment like that, I know you were paying attention this morning, and uh, I really appreciate that. (laughs) Tonight, we're continuing our study of the lives of the Twelve Apostles, and we want to talk about the Apostle John together for a few minutes. Now, John was part of the Lord's inner circle along with his brother James and Peter. But John was clearly not the dominant personality among that group. Uh, For one thing, as we said last week, he was likely the younger brother of the two. And if you read through the book of Acts, and you see there in those first 12 chapters, John normally appears right alongside Peter there. He's still in the background. Peter's the primary spokesman. John is a, a sidekick. He, he's Robin to Peter's Batman, if that's an analogy that makes sense to some of us, perhaps. But John had his turn at leadership, too. In the end he outlived all of the other apostles and so his personal influence continued long into the post-apostolic era when we think of John we probably think as our text indicated a few moments ago he was the writer of the gospel that bears his name we probably think of John first and foremost as the author of a good deal of the New Testament not only that gospel account but Three letters, the book of Revelation. In fact, John wrote more of the New Testament than anyone besides Luke and the Apostle Paul. So, Scripture is full of insights into his character. And in fact, most of what we can learn about John, we pick up from his writings. They reveal a lot to us about the man. And based on that, We typically think of John as the apostle of love, right? John talks about love a great deal in his writings. He writes more than anyone else in the New Testament on its importance in a variety of ways. God's love for us, our love for God, Christ's love for the church, the love that we ought to have for one another as disciples of Christ. His writings are just filled with the importance of this virtue of love. But, you know, everything that we said last week about James and his character and his personality holds true for John, too. Remember, they're the sons of thunder. That's plural. John was just explosive as James was. John was just as ready to call down fire on that Samaritan village as James was. John was right there in the thick of things disputing about who would sit on Jesus' right and left hand, just like James did. His zeal and his ambition were just like that of his brother. It's remarkable that that sort of man becomes known as the apostle of love. And what that points out to us is that love was not just something that came naturally to John. It didn't just flow out of his personality. He learned that from Jesus. We have this... Picture in our minds of John from medieval art and renaissance art that we really need to try to to Purge from our collective memory banks, but if you've ever seen any pictures of John, he's always uh, Meek and pale and even uh, effeminate almost leaning there on Jesus breast looking up at him all doe-eyed John was every bit as rough and as hard-edged as any one of those other fishermen-turned-apostles. He was every bit as explosive as his brother was. And in fact, the only time we find him speaking alone in the Synoptic Gospels, in a story we're going to talk about in a few minutes from Mark chapter 9, he just confirms that impression that we have of him. But in the end, John aged well. He didn't finish the way that he started off. Just like we've seen with these other men, Jesus was able to take that raw material and to mold and to shape him into what he wanted him to be. Jesus taught John balance. See, John had a great zeal for the truth. But the danger of a person like that is that they can become an extremist. Jesus had to teach John balance. Jesus had to turn that son of thunder into the apostle of love. How did he do that? How did John learn balance from Jesus? How did Jesus transform his life? Well, first of all, John had to learn to balance love and truth. Now, John was committed to the truth from very early on in his life. The first time that we're introduced to him, chronologically, is in John chapter 1, verse number 35, where we find that both he and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And as soon as Jesus came by and John the Baptist pointed Jesus out to them, this is the one I've been pointing to, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the whole point of John's ministry. So Andrew and John, they dropped everything and they began to follow Jesus from that point on. Once they determined he was the Messiah, John was seeking after truth from early in his life. And that concern comes out in all of his writings. John uses the Greek word for truth 25 times in his gospel. He uses it another 20 times in his three letters, and you know, none of those letters are very long. A couple of them, 2nd and 3rd John, are only one chapter each. He uses the word for truth 20 times in those three books combined. We get good indications of this, for example, 3rd John, verse number four. He says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in truth. He says, on the other hand, if someone who claims to follow Jesus but they're walking in darkness, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. No one in all of Scripture, with the exception of the Lord Himself, places a greater emphasis on truth than John does. But the problem is that sometimes as a young man, John lacked the compassion that was necessary to go hand-in-hand with that truth. He needed to learn balance between those two things. And that brings us to a good illustration of this. In Mark chapter 9, I mentioned already, this is the one place in all of the synoptic Gospels where John speaks by himself. That is, there's no James associated with him here. There's no Peter associated with him. This is pure John. So presumably this gives us a good insight into his character. And I think it's important for us to set the scene here in Mark chapter 9 and understand the larger context. This occurs not long after the Transfiguration. You can read about that at the beginning of Mark chapter 9. And you all remember that Jesus had appeared there in His glory, right alongside Elijah and Moses. And Peter and James and John were the only three of the twelve who were privy to that it's a special event and Then at the end of all of that the last thing that they're told in verse number nine is they're going down the mountain is Don't tell anybody what you've seen That must have been an almost impossible Secret to keep here. They have this extraordinary experience that just happened and it, it must have been just waiting to burst right out of them and Jesus says you can't tell anyone well it's not long after that that another one of these arguments about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom breaks out Uh, Jesus asked them about it down in verse number 33 they go to Capernaum and Jesus asked them what were you guys talking about there on the road now Jesus doesn't need information he's wanting a confession here but Evidently, they're embarrassed about that. It says in verse number 34 they kept silent because on the road there they had argued about who was the greatest. And you know, based on what had just happened, we can imagine, we don't know for sure, but we can imagine how that argument began. All of the apostles were wanting to be that right hand man, you remember. And I imagine that now that Peter and James and John had seen the transfiguration, they must have figured that, well, they've got the inside track. Surely, surely one of us is going to be number one. And probably then they were arguing about who was going to be one of those three. You know, maybe they were thinking about who was closest to Jesus when he was transfigured. Maybe they were reminding Peter that, hey, that voice from heaven had rebuked you when he suggested building those tabernacles. No, you, this is my beloved son, hear him. So probably the dispute broke out some way in that way. And Jesus seizes this opportunity to teach them once again. In verse number 35, he says to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but Him who sent me. You see what this is? This is a lesson about love. This is essentially the same lesson that we had this morning. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13:4 love does not boast, love is not arrogant. And it's this rebuke, I think, that prompts John to speak. And this is what we're leading up to in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. That's sectarianism. That's John wanting to shut a man down because he's an outsider. He's not part of their little group. And John doesn't want anyone else to have that status that he has. John's willing to to shout this man down to stop him from doing things in Jesus' name just because he's not one of them. And, of course, Jesus rebukes him for that. But I think if we appreciate that larger context, what we see here is that John confesses this because he's penitent. He understands this rebuke that Jesus has just given them about being humble, and so John comes out with this. Well, you know, we did just try to stop a man from doing good works, casting out demons in your name. So I think it's an indication we're going to see John's far from finished yet, but something in him was at least beginning to change. He was beginning to learn the importance of this balance between love and truth. And that is a lesson that a lot of us could still stand to learn. There's a great need in the church for people who are bold and courageous And zealous and passionate for the truth the way that John was John had all of those things in spades but he would never reach his full potential and if he didn't balance that love for the truth with love he'd never be all that he could be see zeal for the truth it's not enough There are a lot of people in the church, you probably know some people like this, listened to some people like this, read some of their writings. There are a lot of people who are just like John in that they have all of their doctrinal ducks in a row. I guess we can put it that way. That is, all of their teaching is just right, all the way down the line. And they're really zealous about that. Contending for the faith. But really, as often as not, they're just contentious. They're quarrelsome. They're self exalting. They're unloving. I've heard some people and I've seen some people write, you know, Paul admonishes us in Ephesians chapter 4 that we need to speak the truth in love. I have heard some people say that, well, if I tell you the truth, no matter how I tell it to you, I'm doing it in love. Because if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you the truth. As the old saying goes, there's a Greek word for that. It's baloney. Paul would not need to urge people that if it was just axiomatic. I mean, he goes on later in the chapter and encourages them not to be angry. He encourages them to speak in a certain way. Colossians chapter 4, he says that our speech always needs to be uh, spoken with grace, seasoned with salt. The way that we present the truth is important. Just because we're telling it doesn't mean we're doing it in love. And so, people like this, their faith becomes merely intellectual but it's cold it's unloving it's unattractive to people and Because they don't have that love that they ought They completely undercut that truth that they claim to revere so much But on the other hand There are some people who are imbalanced in the other direction and I I worry that if that first group characterizes the church a good deal in the past, and we've experienced that to some extent. So often when we correct, we overcorrect, and the pendulum swings all the way to the other side rather than finding that balance that Jesus tried to teach John. We swing too far in the other direction, and I'm concerned that increasingly in our day and in future generations, the problem the church has is emphasizing love to the extent that we compromise on the truth. There are a lot of people today who preach love and then tolerate all sorts of things that are evil. That's not biblical love, that's a syrupy, sentimental imitation of the real thing. Paul says we're to speak the truth. In love, or the way he puts it in First Corinthians chapter thirteen in verse number six, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Disciples of Jesus must cultivate both of these virtues in equal measure. We need to seek the truth, and we need to uphold that truth in love, and if there's One thing that all of us should strive for, it's that, that we can all uphold the truth in love. John learned that lesson, and we have a good example of how he learned it from his second letter. Throughout 2 John, he talks a great deal about love and truth. He combines these two things. So in verse number 4, He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And this is all about walking in the truth. But you see, the sum of walking in the truth is love. These two things aren't separate. They go hand in hand, or it's like a fist in a glove for John. If you're walking in truth, it means that you're keeping God's commandments. If you love God, it means that you're keeping His commandments. And what's the greatest of His commandments? Well, it's to love one another, and it's to love God. These two things go together. They're inseparable when we understand them right. But you notice then that this emphasis on love is balanced with a warning not to compromise. In the next verse, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Love and truth have to be maintained in perfect balance. We can't abandon one for the sake of the other. We can't hold to one and neglect the other. John learned that from Jesus. He also had to learn to balance ambition and humility. As we've seen, John had some pretty ambitious plans for himself, and that's not wrong in and of itself. But it seems that John's ambition primarily came from selfish motivations. He wanted to be perceived as a, a great man. And so Jesus had to temper his ambition with humility We go back to Mark's gospel and in Mark chapter 10 There's Mark's account of James and John's request that we looked at last week that they might be the ones to sit on his right and left hand on thrones in his kingdom But Jesus in Mark chapter 10 again the context is important Jesus had just reiterated the importance of humility verse number 31 many who are first will be last and the last first So Jesus has just taught that and Remember as we've seen a moment ago It's not long before that he just taught it in the form of an object lesson with that child right there in their midst You must become like this little child. You must humble yourself And yet James and John come right on the heels of those lessons and they ask for those right and left hand positions in Jesus kingdom That's pretty audacious for them to do that in the face of those lessons. It tells us how utterly devoid of humility John was. And so Jesus makes it clear that those highest positions in the kingdom are reserved for the humble. Verse 42 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to do great things for God, you must be humble. The kingdom of God isn't advanced by force or by power or by status or by politics. And that's a lesson that we could stand to learn whether we're talking about out in the world and trying to advance the church in forceful ways or whether we're talking about within the church and, you know, a lot of preachers and even members could learn to shy away from sort of palace intrigue, if we could call it that, These, this infighting that we experience sometimes. The church is advanced by humble service, Jesus says. And John learned that lesson well. Humility is a concept that comes out again and again throughout all of his writings. For example, we saw this in the text that uh, was read a few moments ago before our lesson. John never mentions himself by name in his gospel. He always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, of course, we also know from his gospel that Jesus loved all of his disciples. And so the idea is that John only thinks of himself in relation to Jesus, and it's almost like he's amazed that Jesus could love a man like him. John's gospel is the only one that includes the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which is probably his greatest object lesson in humility. That must have made a profound effect on John. And if you read through his letters, we saw an indication of this already, but John frequently refers to his audience as my little children or as my beloved. That shows his compassion right there. He doesn't lord it over them. He's identifying with them in a sense. So John remained courageous and bold and passionate, but he was mellowed. The Lord balanced that with humility. Finally, John learned the balance between suffering and glory. You know, James and John weren't the only two of the apostles who were interested in those thrones. All of the apostles were seeking those chief seats there in the kingdom. But Jesus tells them here in Mark chapter 10, there's a price for that. For one thing, they're reserved only for the humble. But for another thing, You're going to have to pass through suffering if you're going to be in those places of honor. And so that's why James and John are told in Mark 10, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And of course, they naively assume that that's going to be easy. Yeah, of course we can do that, they say. And yet when they had that opportunity to stand up for Jesus, when he is to drink that cup, every one of the twelve tucks tail and they, they run. They scatter. Fortunately, with Jesus, failure isn't final. And each one of these men had the opportunity to redeem themselves, and according to tradition, all of them, except for John, ended up dying a martyr's death the cause of Christ. John alone, according to tradition, lived to an old age, but that means that he suffered in ways that the others didn't. John's brother, James, was the first of the twelve to die. That means that he felt his loss in a uniquely personal way that the rest of them didn't experience. And of course, as John grew older, he watched each one of his associates, his friends, his brothers, be killed one after another after another. In some ways, I think that must have been the most painful suffering of all, to be an old man and to have all of these others who've gone on to their reward. Our sources tell us that John lived out his last years in Ephesus, that he was a leader there in that church that Paul had planted. but. Uh, under the Roman Emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96, John was exiled to Patmos. Patmos is a small, rocky island just off the western coast of Turkey. It was there in Patmos that John received the revelation that's recorded in that last book of the Bible. He probably slept there in a cave. Imagine that suffering for this man, probably in his 80s by this point with only a hard rock slab and a stone for a pillow and isolated from the rest of the world. And yet John suffered gladly. We have no record, no hint of any sort of complaint in any of his letters that he wrote around this time. See, he'd learned to look beyond that cup of suffering that Jesus gave him to drink to that glory that he was promised. John reminds me in a lot of ways of uh, a lot of guys fresh out of preaching school, and some of you have probably experienced this type. They're loaded up with the truth, but they're short on patience. And so they come in a lot of times with just both guns, both barrels blazing here. They're blasting people because they're so zealous and they want to preach the truth like that, but they have yet to learn mercy and grace and forgiveness and compassion, the lessons that John needed to learn. Being bold, being thunderous, that's a good thing. That's necessary at times. But it's got to be balanced by love. John's a great model for preachers and for all of us to learn from. It's amazing that Jesus would love a man who wanted to burn the Samaritans. It's amazing that Jesus would love a man who was interested in his own power, and his own status. It's amazing that Jesus would love a man who turned and fled instead of suffering right there alongside him. But you see, in doing that, Jesus turned him into a different man. And in the end, John reflected that love that Jesus had modeled for him. Tradition tells us that after Domitian died in 96, that John returned from his exile and he lived out his final years in Ephesus. We're told there that as an old man, he was so frail that he had to be carried to church. But the one thing that was always on his lips over and over and over again, he would say, my little children love one another. And when they asked him why, he always talked about that. He said, it's the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. Do you have that love for one another that you ought to deny? Do you have that love for God that you ought? If not, we encourage you, take the opportunity you have now to make changes while we stand and while we sing.